0: God's people sing in corporate worship. Why? Because God Himself has commanded it to be part of our worship of Him.
1: Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Consider music during Sunday morning church service. Does it matter what kind? Hi, I'm Bill Wright, and today we're continuing the series Recovering a Lost Legacy. The second commandment teaches that God alone has the right to prescribe how His people are to worship Him, and this very much includes the music we play and sing at church. We as Christians should follow the biblical pattern of singing as found in both the Old and New Testaments. God's people sing biblical songs, and such singing should flow out of a love for Christ and His Word. Is that the priority of your own church? Making it more personal, is that the priority in your own life? Let's join Tom now to find out more on the Word Unleashed.
0: Psalm 33 verse 1 sing for joy in Yahweh, O you righteous ones. Praise is becoming to the upright. Praise fits those who know Him. Give thanks to Yahweh with the lyre. Sing praises to Him with a harp of ten strings. Sing to Him a new song. Play skillfully with a shout of joy, for the Word of the Lord is upright and all His work is done in faithfulness." So here we have the command to sing and to play instruments in the worship of God because of who God is, because He's worthy of this worship and praise. Turn over to Psalm 69. Psalm 69, verse 30, I will praise the name of God with song and magnify Him with thanksgiving. And watch verse 31, and it will please Yahweh better than an ox or a young bull with horns and hooves. In other words, listen, if I sing to God, if I praise God from my heart, it is a better and more acceptable sacrifice to God than if I lived in Old Testament times and offered an animal. It's exactly what Hebrews says, right? We offer the sacrifice of our lips, giving praise to His name. Turn over to Psalm 96. Psalm 96, verse 1 Sing to Yahweh a new song. Sing to Yahweh all the earth. Sing to Yahweh, bless His name. Proclaim good tidings of His salvation from day to day. Tell of His glory among the nations, His wonderful deeds among all peoples. Why? Because great is Yahweh and greatly to be feared, greatly to be praised. In other words, it's because of who God is that calls out our praise, that calls out our singing and our worship. Look at Psalm 100, a favorite of mine. The first verse is a call to own God as our King. The second verse is a call to worship. Serve is really another word for worship. Worship Yahweh with gladness. Come before Him with joyful singing. Psalm 147. And again, I'm just highlighting a couple of passages that show this. Psalm 147, verse 1, Praise Yahweh, for it is good to sing praises to our God, for it is pleasant and praise is becoming. Psalm 149 is, is about the praise of God in song. The Verse 1, Praise Yahweh, sing to Yahweh a new song, and His praise in the congregation of the godly ones. Verse 5, let the godly ones exult in glory. Let them sing for joy on their beds. Notice there is a call to sing privately and individually and corporately with God's people. We are commanded to sing to our God in worship. Now, let me just say that we live in an audience-based entertainment culture, and there are too many churches where people just watch during the singing with their mouths closed. Now, that's true for a number of reasons. In some cases, it's because the music is a performance, and they don't really want the people singing. Perhaps music and singing and its importance have never really been explained. Others I think sometimes choose not to sing because they say, you know, I just can't sing well or… or music's just not my thing. In some cases, particularly with the younger set, it's just not cool. Listen, all of those reasons are totally unacceptable. The Bible commands all true believers to sing. So unless you have a physical issue, you can't sing that day or can't sing, period, because of some physical limitation, or you're being asked to sing something that's wrong, that's in error, you have to sing. Not singing otherwise is a sin, because it's a direct disobedience to our Lord. It's a command. A second biblical argument for the priority of music and worship is this, a love for God-centered music is the fruit of being filled by the Spirit. Turn to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. The theme of the passage that begins in verse 15 of chapter 5 is we, if we're going to walk worthy of our calling, must walk in biblical wisdom. You remember the second half of Ephesians is about walking worthy of our calling. That's Ephesians 4.1. Well, one way to walk worthy of our calling is to walk in biblical wisdom. Look at verse 15. Be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise. And then the following verses explain how to walk in biblical wisdom. There are several ways spelled out here, but the last one, the one to which Paul is building, is in verse 18. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with or by the Spirit. Now, this is, a, this is another message, and in fact, if you weren't here when we worked our way through Ephesians, go listen, but let me just give you a summary Being filled by the Spirit means, not that you get more of the Spirit. If you're a Christian, you've got all the Spirit you're going to get. He indwells you. Being filled by the Spirit means that the Spirit so fills you with the Word of God, compare Colossians 3.16, He so fills you with the Word of God that the Word of God permeates, directs, controls your thinking, your attitudes, and your actions. So, Be filled by the Spirit with the Word of God. That's the end of verse 18. Now, in verse 19, Paul leaves that command and describes the consequences of being filled by the Spirit with the Word of God. There are consequences. Just like there are effects of being under the influence of alcohol, there are effects of being under the influence of the Spirit. What are those effects? Well, they're spelled out in verses 19 to 21. Look at them with me. So he says in verse 18, and this is the main verb, be filled with the Spirit, and then you have several participles, verse 19, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, to God even the Father, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Now, notice there are five participles there that modify the main verb, be filled. Verse 19, speaking, singing, making melody. Verse 20, giving thanks. Verse 21, being subject. Those participles explain the primary consequences of being filled by the Spirit with His Word. Really, there are three consequences. Verse 19, you have a love for God-centered music. Verse 20, you're characterized by a pattern of thankfulness. And verse 21, you have a heart of submission to human authority. Those are the inevitable results of being under the influence of the Spirit. So listen carefully. Where the Word is filling the heart under the influence of the Spirit, an inevitable consequence of that will be a love for God-centered music. This is a spiritual diagnostic. Ask yourself, do you daily love and enjoy worshiping God with God-centered music? To whatever extent you have to say no to that, understand that it's, it's a spiritual diagnostic and it's telling you one of two things. It's either telling you you don't have the Holy Spirit, you don't know God, regardless of what you claim. Or it may be telling you that you are a believer, but you are not allowing the Holy Spirit to really fill you with the knowledge of His Word so that this is what's produced as you understand who God is, and that overflows in praise. There's a third argument for the priority of music and worship, and it's that Christ commands the church to worship in music in its corporate worship. Now, let me just say that there is an increasing push today to incorporate secular music into the church's worship. In fact, over the last few years, churches have used everything from Coldplay to Van Halen, Creed, U2, ACDC, Taylor Swift, and even Garth Brooks in the worship of the church Right now, a pastor in our area is doing a series where each week he plays a secular song and his sermon is trying to find the spiritual truth in that song. Now, why do we include music in our worship and why don't we include secular songs? Well, there's one answer to both of those questions. It's the second commandment. You see, the second commandment teaches that God alone has the right to prescribe how we worship Him. Listen to Exodus 20, verses 4 and 5. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them nor serve them. Now, listen carefully. That is not a commandment not to worship other gods because the first commandment, is that commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. That's a commandment not to worship other gods. The second commandment, the one I just read, is a commandment not to shape your worship of the true God in the way you choose. Don't follow the culture around you. That's what they were tempted to do. All the people around ancient Israel, guess what? They had idols to represent their gods. Well, why can't we have an idol to represent our god? which is, by the way, exactly what happened with the golden calf. They finished the golden calf, and what did they say? This is Yahweh, your God, who led you out of the land of of Egypt. God says, not only are you not to have any other gods, but you don't get to decide how to worship me. That's the second commandment. We only include certain elements in corporate worship based on what Scripture prescribes. Now, There was agreement among the Reformers on this basic principle because it grew out of Sola Scriptura. The Bible is the ultimate and only authority in faith and practice. But although they agreed on Sola Scriptura, they disagreed on how that fleshed out in determining what elements should be included in worship. And the reason I mention it is this. Those two views from the Reformation are still very much alive and well today, and churches are shaped by them. What are those two views? Well, the first view is that of the Lutherans and the Anglicans who joined with the Roman Catholics in embracing what was called the normative principle. The normative principle teaches that whatever Scripture does not explicitly forbid is acceptable in worship. In other words, the normative principle asks this, does Scripture forbid this practice in worship? And if the Scripture doesn't explicitly forbid it, then it's it's okay. Do what you want. Others, the Reformed, embrace the opposite position called the regulative principle. And the regulative principle argues that only that which Scripture explicitly prescribes is acceptable in worship. The regulative principle asks this, does Scripture command or directly sanction this practice? If not, then it's not allowed in worship. John Calvin puts it well when he writes, God disapproves of all modes of worship not expressly sanctioned by His Word. And he wasn't alone in this. Both the Westminster Confession, representing the Presbyterian line, and the Second London Baptist Confession of of 1689, representing the Baptist, both say exactly the same thing. Listen, the acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by Himself and so limited by His own revealed will that He may not be worshiped according to the imaginations and devices of men," listen carefully, "...or any other way not prescribed in the Holy Scripture." Because of the danger of violating the second commandment, and because God has very clearly said that only He decides how we worship Him. The elders of this church embrace the regulative principle. That means our corporate worship, everything after the announcement you heard this morning, everything from that moment until our service is over, happens because God has commanded us to do these things. Our corporate worship includes only seven elements, the seven that God has prescribed in His Word. In our worship services, this is what you will see because it's what God's Word sets forth. Number one, prayer. Number two, worship and music. Number three, the reading of Scripture. Number four, the teaching of Scripture. Number five, giving to support the ministry of the church and the kingdom. Number six, baptism. And number seven, the Lord's table. That's it. That's all God has prescribed in His Word and that's all we're going to do in corporate worship. When we do those seven things with the right heart, it honors God because those are His specific directives for our worship. So, back to the theme, God's people sing in corporate worship. Why? Because God Himself has commanded it to be part of our worship of Him. We saw it in the Old Testament, corporate worship was foundational. It's true in the synagogues that our Lord was a part of, and it's also true in the New Testament church. In 1 Corinthians 14, Paul is dealing with the problem of tongues in Corinth, but in the middle of that discussion, he inserts several things that were part of the normal worship services of God's people. One of those is singing. 1 Corinthians 14, 15, and 26. This is also what Paul wanted the Ephesians to understand here in Ephesians 5, 19, God's people sing collectively for various reasons, and we'll look at those, Lord willing, next time. There's a fourth argument for the priority of music, and it's the fact, and this is amazing, that our Lord Himself sings. Why does music occupy such a crucial role in Scripture? I mean, I get it. Why why the teaching of God's Word is so central in the worship of God's people. It's God's words, after all. But why music? The simple answer is because it is a huge priority to God Himself. Listen carefully. God Himself sings. Turn to Zephaniah. It's near the end of the Old Testament, a little prophecy. Zephaniah chapter 3. The context here… The prophet is talking about when God brings His people back from Babylon, from their captivity, and reconstitutes them in the land. But then in the middle of this chapter, he starts talking about the ultimate restoration that will come when Christ comes. It will come with the millennium and with the eternal future. And notice what he writes in verse 16 of Zephaniah 3. In that day it will be said to Jerusalem, Do not be afraid, O Zion. Do not let your hands fall limp. Yahweh, your God, is in your midst, a victorious warrior. He will exult over you with joy. He will be quiet in his love. He will rejoice over you with shouts of joy. Now, I love the NAS, but that really is a bad translation, the last line of verse 17. In fact, let me give you the ESV translation, the English Standard Version. He will exult over you with loud singing. Some of you like the new legacy standard Bible that the Master Seminary has worked on. Here is, here is the translation he gives. He will rejoice over you with joyful singing. This is amazing. When we seek God, verses 12 and 13 of this chapter, when we trust in him, verses 14 to 16, God, our God, takes personal delight in us just as he will in redeemed Israel in the future. As one author describes it, this is not an aloof, emotionless contentment, but it bursts forth in joyful, divine celebration. God will sing over His people when He brings them into His kingdom. Turn to Hebrews chapter 2. This is my favorite. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10. Now, you, you have to follow His logic here carefully. Let me just read it, and you follow along in your copy of God's Word. Hebrews 2 verse 10, for it was fitting for Him, and Him here is God, for whom are all things and through whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation, that's Jesus, through sufferings. For both He, that is Jesus, who sanctifies and those who are sanctified, that's us, are all from one Father for which reason He, that is Jesus, is not ashamed to call us His brothers, saying, and this is Jesus talking to the Father now, I will proclaim your name to my brethren. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in Him. And again, behold, I and the children whom God has given me. This is an amazing passage, but in verse 12, the writer of Hebrews is quoting Psalm 22:22. It's one of the Messianic Psalms that's quoted often of Jesus in the Gospels. Now, look at the end of verse 12. Literally, in the Greek text, it reads this way. This is Jesus talking to the Father. In the middle of the assembly, that is the assembly of my brethren whom you saved, I will hymn you. He uses the word H-Y-M-N, hymn as a verb. I will hymn you. I will praise you. I will sing praises to you. This is amazing. Jesus sang praise to the Father while He was here, and He will lead us in the praise of the Father in eternity. And the end of verse 13 explains the reason for this praise, behold the children whom God has given to me. Jesus Christ, our Lord, will stand in the middle of us, a redeemed humanity, and He will sing praise to God the Father that the Father has given us to Him. And then we will join our Lord in His songs of praise about our redemption. It's no wonder that our redemption is one of the primary reasons for our songs now as well. Folks, our God is sings? Do you? Do you love God-centered music? Do you find yourself singing praise to God privately and personally? Do you enjoy singing with the people of God? Is music that expresses praise to God a crucial part of your life? If not, listen carefully, it's a very, very effective spiritual diagnostic. It means either you don't have God's Spirit or it means you're not mature in Christ. You don't understand the Word of God because what the Word of God does as we learn more about God is it draws out our praise and worship. We just can't help it. It's the automatic response. You're not allowing the Spirit to fill you with the Word richly in all wisdom because the very first result of being filled by the Spirit is a love for God-centered music, and it's God's command to us personally, privately, individually, and corporately. Psalm 100 verse 2, worship Yahweh with gladness, come before Him with joyful singing.
1: That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part four of his series, Recovering a Lost Legacy. Tom will have part five next time, and we hope you'll join us then. Well, Tom, before we end our time today, would you share a closing thought with us?
0: You know, friend, I think it's so important for us to understand that loving God-centered music is actually a fruit of being filled with the Holy Spirit. That's what Paul says so clearly in Ephesians 5. This means that those who are under the influence and control of the spirit and the word of God, desire to engage in music that exalts Jesus Christ, that gives honor to God, both the word of God and the spirit of God work together in the heart of the believer to increase in them a love for worshiping him through music and singing. And if the church is to recover the lost legacy of music, we must all understand that music in the context of Christ's church must be God-centered.
1: Thanks, Tom. And friend, in a world filled with great uncertainty, God's Word and the promises it contains offer wonderful encouragement to believers in Jesus Christ. We pray that the ministry of the Word Unleashed is playing a prominent role to that effect, and we'd love to hear how that works in your life and personal walk with the Lord write to us, won't you? Our address is listeners at the word Again, that's listeners at the wordunleashed.org. Or you can call us at 1-877-577-WORD. And remember to connect with us on social at The Word Unleashed. We also invite you to visit thewordunleashed.org where you'll find other resources including additional series from The Word Unleashed. That's thewordunleashed.org. You know, The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals just like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do that by visiting thewordunleashed.org. Again, that's thewordunleashed.org.